Welcome to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Hello, dear ones. I hope you are well. Welcome to Season 3 of Blink of an Eye. I'm so glad you're here listening and learning to further your personal trauma healing journey. The more we heal ourselves, the more we contribute to the planet and our wider community. Before we enter season three with the continued blink of an eye story, I wanted to look back at season two with the recap episode. For those of you who aren't caught up on the previous season, I hope you will find it helpful. And you can always go back if you aren't caught up yet, or if you want more specifics about the episodes, or you just have favorites you want to hear again. We are opening season three with a longer recap that covers all 25 narrative episodes from season two. That's beginning with Archer's cardiac arrest, to his many surgeries, to finding our new North Star, and our eventual exodus on Eagle's Wings out of Atlanta Care Intensive Care Unit, on to Atlanta, Georgia. Announcements about the season that you don't want to miss will come at the end of this opening episode. So, settle in, take a deep breath and notice what might come up for you as we look back. Here we go. Welcome to season three, episode one. We've landed. What happens now? I really thought Archer would recover. We'd go to rehab and he'd walk again in a few months back in Baltimore. And then bam, how did this happen? Why did he have a heart attack? As I look back and think about that now, it's either fantastical, dramatic fantasizing, or it could sound like the thinking of a lunatic and maybe it was a bit of both then. But that heart attack, I knew something had gone wrong. I lifted my cell phone and wrote the following text to all those I had been texting over the week. It was around 9 a.m. I imagine it was quite startling. Archer went into cardiac arrest at 3.45 a.m. this morning. Please pray 
that Archer has the will to live. Please keep us in your prayers and pray to the Blessed Mother Mary. She always listens. We can learn so much from each other's experiences. It was actually extraordinary to me. I felt a momentum with each connection like my empty engine was fueled up again. It was also surreal because all this was happening without a word uttered. As I sat bedside to Archer, quietly holding cold compresses under his armpits, hoping it might ease the fever and his suffering. I remember it clearly when the pulmonologist came in and told me Archer had pneumonia. He was the only person who had really spoken to me all day, except my many questions to staff about Archer's diagnosis and wondering what had happened, what caused the heart attack, and now pneumonia? I recalled the words of Dr. Chris Radcliffe again, unless something really bad happens, like pneumonia. Oh my God, Lord, please deliver us. We can't continue to be slammed like this. Please help Archer. It was then that I did something quite bold for me. It may not have been bold for you, but it was for me. We needed more prayers. And so I close my eyes and I ask God, whom else did I need to reach out to and ask for help, Lord? And in that silence, it was amazing the number of names that came into my mind of people I had not been in contact with for a long time, including former clients. And so I looked them up on my phone and I texted them. <laughs> it was risky business asking them to pray. And who was I? But there was no time to waste. And while I did not want to offend anyone, my boy was in grave jeopardy and we needed help. I knew we could be carried through this with united prayer. I remember looking at my phone, which had about 15,000 or more contacts of people I'd worked with or trained over the years. It was like, that was my lifeline.
was so confused. Dr. Radcliffe had told me his broken neck, now set with a lot of titanium plates and rods, wouldn't cause him any pain. But none of it made sense to me, because I saw with my own eyes Archer in the most intense, contorted pain I had ever witnessed in anyone in my whole life. And then they had pumped him full of fentanyl, so I know it was excruciating. And now, we're just waiting for his vitals to bounce back. I know they will. But was this related to the spinal cord injury? One doctor yesterday had said it was a hiccup. What did that mean? I couldn't get any answers. I remember what was running through my mind over and over. A loop. Archer Sempt is a perfectly healthy, athletic 17-year-old. He has a healthy heart. He doesn't have high blood pressure. He has a healthy heart. He doesn't have high blood pressure. He's had an injury. But he has a healthy heart. He doesn't have high blood pressure over and over. And I was scanning our life. I took him for healthy checkups when he was a child to our pediatrician and for sports. And there was nothing wrong with him. And he had stress tests for sports. Nothing was wrong with him. Why did these things happen? Why was he in excruciating pain like I've never witnessed before in my life? Why is he still biting down on his ventilator tube? Why was it blood pressure in the 200s? Did it make sense? I wanted to get to the bottom of why it happened. As part of my look back, it takes my breath away. How much can change in just a day in an intensive care unit? And all I wanted was information, good information, truthful information, complete information, the truth, including what medical doctors don't know. That would have opened the door to hope. I had hope, but it would have opened the door to feeling supported in that hopefulness rather than feeling so alone in the hospital. I bet you know exactly what I'm talking about. Doctors and nurses who believe like this, that would be a sea change for trauma care. This might not seem possible for many doctors to do, but I think it is. If doctors only knew how much it would mean to a family member, to a parent, to a mother, to join with her into the feeling of fighting together for the life of a child, fighting with them for life, That is what would build trust and change every situation, even terrible situations, into something. It's not as tragic.
in the darkness of Archer's room. Not yet the break of dawn. As I looked about that hospital room, I knew it would be light out soon. I closed my eyes and said a Hail Mary. I felt a little calmer when I opened my eyes. But as I did so, I'll never forget how haphazard everything in the room looked to me. We had been living in that room almost two weeks. As I was just sort of scanning, taking it all in in the quiet of the night, I had this thought. Create order and beauty. It will help Archer heal. It was actually a sweet thought. A why not thought. I got up as I felt this urge to organize. It was the same feeling I have had on so many occasions in my life when I've had something coming up that is sort of big and I know I have to devote a lot of time and concentration to it, like writing and putting together an agreement for clients, something important. And I find myself having to clear and tidy and organize my office to get my space prepared before I can begin the big project. And it really helps me clear my mind and do good work. I often get fresh flowers, too. I do. Maybe you know exactly what I'm talking about, and you do the same thing. Do you do the same thing? Well, that's how it was. I felt I could restore some order and bring some beauty into room 3117 to elevate Archer's spirits. And it was then, sort of as a second thought, that I decided I would turn that hospital room into a healing sanctuary. Billy texted me he had arrived and told me to meet him downstairs as we were trading places two floors below Archer's hospital room. As we tried to be quick, and he told me where the car was. He also said, I'll take Dutch back to Baltimore for school and soccer. You stay with Archer after that. I'll be back Labor Day weekend with Dutch and we'll bring Archer home. I was taken aback, as those were some of the many decisions we were discussing yesterday in the mediation, which were not fully decided. We had agreed we'd wait and see how things went with Dutch to know if I should line up some friends to help us sit bedside when Archer got stronger. But Billy did not like that idea. I'm telling you, Billy does a lot of thinking when he's by himself. And I guess he had gone ahead and decided for us. I was actually okay with it. Okay, I said. It made sense, even though it felt a little premature but I was relieved we had agreed on a plan. He then said, Wheezy, 
You need to go home, honey. I know, that's where I'm going, Billy. It's after midnight, he said. When you get there, you've got to go to bed. You've got to rest, because I don't know what help you're going to have. I cannot be in two places at the same time, and you can't either. I did rest, and I drove back early to meet the doctors for early morning rounds and to trade places with Billy. Paula drove back to Cape May from Baltimore and came straight to the hospital too. She was taking some of the last of her vacation days. She and I camped out in the family waiting room, alternating shifts while we made those phone calls. Lots of phone calls. Billy and I had made many decisions in our mediation session and I had a to-do list a mile long. A big mixture of calls related to the feeling we were about to be crushed with medical expenses, no income, and calls about our next steps with Archer. And calls about the other members of our family too who had lives that needed to be attended to as well. It was all I could do to beg Billy though to not sell my building and our house. There were just a lot of logistics. I made calls while Paula covered two hours at a time. Episode 8, Lollipops and Laughter. Day 17, August 21st, 2015, Friday and August 20th, 2015, Thursday, day 16. Archer, so responsive, is weak, but so full of inner life. And his funny side comes through in his come see, come saw expressions as we gently babble to him in light conversations, celebrating that he is so responsive. The spiritual music and lavender and peppermint is still high medicine, fostering his repose and life. It takes diligence daily to keep and maintain it, but we are all in. If it were possible at this time for him to have any air to speak or laugh, he certainly would have. But settled for a sweet rolling of his eyes when at one moment I couldn't make out for the life of me the words he was forming with his mouth. And <laughs> I leaned my ear so close to his lips to see if I could hear his tiny whisper that I practically mashed him when I realized, as if an epiphany, that no matter how close I got, there is no whisper because there is no air, not even a teeny, tiny, weak word. <laughs> oh, we made it a smile moment, but it actually broke my heart again. The gravity of it all still takes me by surprise at times. Later, 
The doctor said it may be a long time until we hear his voice. When they said that, Archer and I exchanged knowing glances, and I said to him, someday. And he gave me a slow motion wink. They also took one of his lung tubes off this afternoon which Petey witnessed, and he got his hair washed for the second time, a real luxury. He still cannot swallow or cough due to the spinal cord being severed along with the C5 break. Yet, he continued to ask when he could have water, which we think is all a very good sign. I continued with the ice cold, super tiny, mini sponges on sticks, what we now call our mini lollipops, which I figured out become softer and also absorb a lot more water if they're washed in soap and reused, just like a kitchen sponge. Archer relishes them, and the nurses approve, because it's okay medically, because it is a method that Archer has devised the fighter that he is, to use a small amounts of water to gag and thus loosen up and get more gunk out of his lungs, which he practices all day long. And honestly, because yesterday we did no less than 100 mini lollipops and we can't keep him supplied. He has a very strong will to breathe on his own. It almost bordered on sheer delight when he mouthed to me with a wry archer smile the word two. <laughs> so in went two mini lollipop sponges at a time. He got so much pleasure from the soft, icy feeling pressed into the inside cheeks of his mouth, first the left, then the right, then he would gag. But we both got so carried away with the new lollipop joy and our ability to talk with each other through the lip reading that Archer mouthed to me, simply orange, which is his favorite orange juice. I inquired about when we might have other liquids and was roundly brought up that even more water than what we are doing now is a no-no, since he neither has the ability to swallow or cough, and anything other than water pressed into the sides of his mouth could go down his throat with no way to clear it, and could also get into the air tube of the ventilator on the trach, and could cause a bacteria infection very easily, they said. That was a data point that was not so refreshing. Another nurse came in to remind us that it would likely be many months before Archer gets even water. Those nurses, they're not part of what we see as Team Sempt. It was unnecessary for her to come in and say this, and we know that. We also respect that she felt she was doing her job. We also hold 
maybe and maybe not. Archer is determined and the Lord is with him. So we continued with our lollipop tiny sponges and I invited him to close his eyes and imagine he was drinking orange juice and how good it tasted and felt and made him feel happy. I asked him to feel that feeling in all of his molecules. I closed my eyes too and tried to feel it with him. It seemed to be enough, at least for that moment. He is such a good kid. Please keep praying. I'll send you the prayer for the creative miracle. Please pray it for us. We love you. I love you. Archer loves you. And we feel your love. Amen. I asked Dutch if he would be willing to do an interview with me. He was not interested for quite a number of months. Then he agreed to a limited interview to talk about when he was at camp and got my call and when they came to Atlantic Care. He told me he wouldn't have much to say. Billy, Archer, and Dutch still do not talk about the actual accident or time in the hospital. Here is an excerpt of our interview. So when we, so that call, I, do you remember what I said to you? I told you Archer had been in an accident. Mm-hmm. What was it like for you when you got that call or when you, when you heard, do you remember? The process of time. I don't know if this is important to you or not, but we had, we didn't know either. It wasn't even that we hadn't processed it yet. When I called you, you called me the day after. Yeah, the sixth. Yeah, I called you on the sixth, and we didn't. Uh, I called Steve on the sixth, and he arranged to get you when you were kayaking on the seventh. And it was Steve who said, "I don't think it would be a good idea to get you in the evening." And I had said, I was just deferring, but I said, I just want to talk to Dutch as soon as possible. I can go back and look. I think I later, later, later that afternoon. Well, you know what, actually, there's sort of a need. It's kind of what it's all about. Some of the unimportant details end up being important, you know, to piece all together. It's not not important to you. Unnecessary. I don't know. I wouldn't want to like read those if I didn't have to. Read the text. You don't, yeah, you don't have to. I have been. Yeah, I'm saying if I were you, I wouldn't want to. Yeah, I probably would not have wanted to um, even 
even two years ago, but since it's been five years, I'm okay now. And they've been really helpful because they've, they've helped me actually. But I called you again. Well, Archer had a heart attack on the 7th or 8th. Yeah. And I called Steve and said, I need to talk with Dutch. I don't remember. You don't remember? Well, I told you. I said, Dutch, um, we're in the hospital. And Archer, and I used the word quadriplegic. And we would be up to still pick you up. You could still stay. Or color ward. And it was in the middle of color ward. And you said, is he going to be okay? And I said, yes, we hope so. I was blocked it. Maybe so, yeah. The 13. Mom was 18 then. Right. You also were in the middle of heavy competition for Cold War. So it could have just been a, you know, get out of my way, like a distraction kind of thing. I'm personally finding that when I interview other people and they give me pieces of information that I didn't have before, it really helps to unlock and help me think about it and realize, right, you know, like, like you just did for me. Oh, right, that's, that happened. You know, I think that a lot, a lot of us block things so we can just keep going, you know what I mean? But that we don't have to continue to block things when we have a supportive environment. I realized the risk of Archer having more heart attacks was real and the pacemaker would kick on if his heart stopped, which would assure he would never flatline again. That was reassuring, but I really did not want him to have that hardware and all those leads in his body, as to me it screamed Infection City. But I realized it was the better choice of two evils, as my mom would say when I was a little girl, to move forward with the consent for the pacemaker. I asked if the two inch by three inch by one inch box could be implanted on Archer's left shoulder, his non-dominant shoulder, in the hopes he had use of his right arm again. I explained to Archer that we could adjust the settings over time 
to turn it off completely and that we could remove it prior to June 24, 2016, just to be safe. I'm not sure Archer heard me too much as he was in and out, but I wanted to tell him everything that they would be doing to him. I had promised. When we had our meeting with Dr. Tolucci, I felt his relief too, that we were expanding our team of experts and thinkers. Maybe it was my imagination, but it felt that way. Little breakthroughs. You know, as Dr. Tolucci and I look back over five years later, I was really surprised by what he had to say. And I was so moved uh, when you said there are some cases you will never forget, and Archer is one of them. Well, it is. You know, our, our job, you know, it's we, we have a, I think the um, the day-to-day, -day, you know, it's intense and extraordinary. You were my first contact, <laughs> my first experience uh, with uh, trauma in a hospital. And I'm, I'm grateful to you. Well, I mean, it, it, the experience is so intense. You know, it's not like there's a, there's downtime. There's no downtime. No downtime. And it is 24 seven, which is the reason why, you know, a trauma doctor cannot be, and, and it, would, it would not be in the patient's best interest to be that person's only caretaker, as, even no matter what level. So that's why you saw, you know, all of my partners all of the time all of us very much involved in Asher's care. Um, likewise, nurses who, 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 you know, certainly worked with him for 12 hours at a, at a pitch, which is, you know, sometimes it's almost like, how, how does someone work with someone as sick as Asher was for 12 straight hours without completely losing it? I was driving past the marshlands and noticing how the reeds caught the morning sunlight. So beautiful. It was almost like flashes, you know, like little glints off the water with the strong, bright, early morning August sun. Mile marker 11. I've been thinking about how Billy and I were wrestling with whether we should get a second or third medical opinion, but it was hard because of Atlanticare's policy on not releasing documents until we were discharged. We had people responding to my family and friends' updates. I had a friend in Baltimore texting us information about her family connections to other experts around the country. Like a Dr. Jim McCarthy, the director of pediatric orthopedics at Cincinnati Children's. And Dr. Peter Stern, they told me about the head of their spinal department and contacts at Shriners Hospital in Philly who could review records, I was told, for free if we could just get them. Another friend in Missouri had texted me about a Dr. Daniel Rue at Washington University and two other spine doctors starting a spine clinic at Columbia University. I wanted to look up each one of these people. 
we couldn't even get to spinal rehab until we got Archer strong enough with good cardiac and pulmonary care. Well, that was how I felt about it. Stay focused, Louise. It was clear to me Archer needed a strong heart to be free of all the lung tubes before any meaningful rehabilitation could occur. But I was worried that might not be for a while. But maybe I was wrong. I didn't know. We just had to get past the cardiac and lung hurdles. I didn't know what to do with all these contacts. And so I had forwarded them to Paula to store for me somewhere. Thank God for Paula. But she wasn't in the greatest shape either, I was beginning to notice, and I wasn't sure she was keeping track. Stay focused, Louise. Mile marker 18. Get answers today. All those people, yeah, they're going to need an Archer's medical records, but just get answers. I was loath to begin anything adversarial with Atlanticare at that moment. It appeared it would require a real fuss to obtain and send out any medical records. I was also aware of this sort of low-level adversarial current between us and Atlantic Care. And I prayed none of his records would be hidden or deleted. I know that sounds crazy, but I had heard of such things happening in my old litigation days. I didn't know if it was true or not, but I didn't want that kind of a tangle. No way, not now. All I wanted were answers. And there were answers right in front of us, and we just have to figure out what was behind us later, if we needed to. I was not interested in suing anyone. I just wanted Archer to be treated well and for us to get on with our lives. I didn't like the Atlanticare policy of not releasing documents to us. But maybe it was just a policy for a reason I didn't understand. I don't know. Stay focused, Louise. It bothered me that I couldn't get records. But I didn't want to wait and ask for them later when I could hopefully get them right away. I'd asked my sister to inquire generally, and they told her the same thing, but that another doctor could request them, and they'd be sent, but that the patient had to provide the copying service and arrange for the copies to be made and direct where the doctor was located and so forth and so on. just had to get out of Atlantic care. As I drove, my mind was very focused on what I knew I could do. Call medical experts I knew from home and connect them to the surgeons at Atlantic care so they could talk on Archer's behalf informally and then inform me of our options. Mile marker 25. I needed to prepare for the doctor meetings that morning. My God, where had the time gone? It was a big morning. 
they were answering my requests. I could feel the energy in my body that I have before large facilitations. Yeah, I wanted to be prepared. Stay focused, Louise. Seek answers. It had just been a few hours since I had left late last night. But in that time, with Paula's text that morning that Archer's heart had stopped again in the night, I knew we could not continue that way. But I didn't know if his delayed heart was a sign of something else or if it was just part of spinal cord injury. But the doctors had confirmed that heart attacks are not part of a typical spinal cord injury. Was a pacemaker really the only course Archer had? Mile marker 28. At least we had some time to decide, as I knew by now that no surgeries happen on the weekend. I guess unless it's life or death. It was Friday. I began making mental notes of all the questions I had. I had so many for our meetings coming up. Oh God, help me be discerning. We had been in the intensive care unit for almost three weeks now. I closed my eyes. Please, Lord, help us see the possibilities. The only thoughts that came to me were to ask for another family meeting in a more formal way. It was the weekend. Except for new admittees with late-night surgeries, it was usually quiet on the weekends in the ICU where we didn't see many doctors. I tore out a piece of paper from my medical notebook and scrawled, This is Louise Fipsempt, Archer Semp's mother, in room 3111. I would like an emergency meeting this weekend with Archer's main doctors, cardiac, pulmonary, and trauma together. I would like my family to understand the situation and for us to decide next steps to get our son out of ICU. I was thinking of family meetings as any group of doctors with me and any other family member. But this time, I wanted a full family meeting and I needed it then over the weekend while everyone was there before they had to get back to their lives. I addressed it to the hospital administrator, walked out of Archer's room, down the hallway, and gave it to one of the nurses in the donut hole. I asked if she could get it to the appropriate person for emergency meetings with families. She asked me, in a startled but sweet voice, if everything was all right. And I, a bit tartly, I admit, said, no, everything is not all right and we need a meeting. And I am trusting that you will get my note into the right hands. Feel free to read it. We need a meeting this weekend. 
as I turned to head back to Archer's room. I regretted the tone I had used and made a note to tell her next time I saw her that I was sorry about that. It probably got the job done, but I don't think it was necessary. A woman whom I did not recognize, dressed in civilian clothes, but with the hospital credentials dangling around her neck on the lanyard, entered Archer's room a few hours later. She told me a meeting was scheduled for that night after the emergency surgeries. I felt hopeful. Thank you, I said to her. She turned on her heels and seemed purely administrative and unattached. Just a messenger, but an important message. I turned my attention to thinking about meeting Pete for the appointments we had scheduled at Kernan Hospital for Veterans, both outpatient and inpatient for Archer, and at Kennedy Krieger Institute at Johns Hopkins, also both inpatient and outpatient. What if we don't make the right decision to do what was best to get Archer back to walking someday? I couldn't believe no one at Atlanticare was able to help me much at all about rehab. And I felt a little lost. I mean, I got it. It was not part of what they did in the ICU. But shouldn't they know something? I mean, where do people go after ICU? Billy and I were flailing. And my marriage was getting strained. I knew Billy wanted him home in Baltimore. I did too. But I didn't know if Baltimore was best for Archer. But I wanted to stay by Archer's side. And Dutch's. I couldn't be away from Dutch. I prayed Kernan would be a good place. Or Kennedy Krieger. I turned into Northern Parkway. I didn't know what it would look like when we returned to Baltimore. Would we be taking Archer to rehab every day or finding a place where he could live overnight for a couple weeks to get him stabilized? But I didn't want him alone in the night at any place. I was getting clearer and clearer that whatever happened, I wanted to be at Archer's side. I wanted him to live and have a good life. And I wanted to be his advocate. Midnight. Oh my goodness, you won't believe it. A friend of Archer's from his school, McDonough, just sent this photo. It's of a prayer vigil held tonight. I guess I have to say last night at Paula's school, the friend school. It's a sight I will hold in my heart forever. I can't imagine such love. Archer is very loved. We all need each other. 
Here are other pictures of the vigil too, taken by family friend and photographer, Mary Carol Curran. Amen. If you can imagine a large hill in the nighttime, dark, but covered with small flickers of light, covered, that is what was in the photo. It took my breath away. And as I looked closer at other photos sent, in the sea of people, in the darkness of the night, holding candles, I spotted Billy. The text messages said he had addressed the large crowd of so many young people. Wow. That would be something he had never done before. It's not Billy's thing to speak publicly off the cuff. And someone also sent me a copy of the newscast on a Baltimore television station. They had covered it too. Billy was anchored by a faith that believed in miracles too. I knew that. And we still believe, even if the miracles we hoped for didn't come to pass. Yet. Episode 15, Moving Towards the Pain. The combination of lung surgeries caused Archer to experience searing pain. Remember that silent scream when they put the blood pressure medicine in a strip bag by accident and it caused his head to explode? He had the same desperate open mouth, wild-eyed look from his pain. He had no way to scream or yell, but he threw back his head, causing the neck brace to no longer line up with his neck. And while his body is limp because of being paralyzed, the writhing of his neck and twisting of his face would actually cause his body or something to twitch or some kind of deep pain in his body was sending secondary impulses. But his paralyzed body twitched. I saw it and it was gruesome. I didn't understand it, but I knew it was awful. Oh my God, please God, have mercy on us. I knew this time, like the blood pressure time, was different from the other pain. Archer knew from when he was a boy and hurt that it was best not to fight pain especially physical pain. It was best to breathe into pain and try to relax. I knew this from my somatic body work related to my journey in conflict and conflict transformation. I had helped clients breathe through emotional pain that had caused them to have shortness of breath 
and I had breathed with my children over the years through physical pain when they fall off a bicycle or got injured playing sports or touch football or skiing to relax them so the pain did not get worse by the mind contributing to it or participating in it. It hurts. Oh, yes, my darling, I know it hurts. Breathe. Breathe with me. Come on. Just let it be. Don't fight it. It will pass. After two hours with little, if any, change, they drugged Archer into a coma-like sleep. It was eerie to see him in the deep drug-induced sleep. I studied him closely to watch his slow and shallow breathing and to see his body continue to twitch in pain. I still didn't understand that. But he was out of the misery of feeling the pain at least for a while. Oh, I had so many questions about pain and quadriplegia. Sleep, my love. Allow your body to heal. My phone rang. Hello? Is this Louise F? Yes. I'd like to talk with you off the record. Who is this? It's Bernadette Morrow. You don't know me. I work with the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. We have been following your blog on your son. I'm not calling you in my official capacity, but off the record. Can you talk? Yes. You've got to get your son the hell out of there. They're harming your son. She told me we had to get our son to a place called the Shepherd Center. It felt like a spark in the night. Episode 16, Radical Forgiveness. Mistakes do get made. Some cause harm. Some cause no harm. Some cause a lot of harm. We are also human and not always perfect. I wrestle with this tension. Maybe you do too. I've thought a lot about that and have spoken with Bernadette Morrow, Director of Spinal Cord Information and Resources at the Dana and Christopher Reeve Foundation about it as well. Here's an excerpt of that interview as she reflected back five years later to that time in 2015 when we connected for the first time. 
Yes, you had told me a few things that had happened with staff and the number of codes that were going on and the nursing errors that occurred. Yes. And it was clear they, you know, um, uh, a spinal cord injury that's a drowning is, is precarious. And um, if you don't understand autonomic dysreflexia, if you're not cautious, you can over give the patient blood pressure medication and then you crash them and you bottom them out um, because you don't just you don't recognize that this autonomic dysreflexia and then when you bring when you crash them then you cause their lungs to collapse again and then you have to revive them and give them too much medication and I've seen it over and over and over over the years because physicians and hospital staff don't have the appropriate materials um, and they may not understand spinal cord injury, that they overtreat patients and they end up doing not intentional harm, but harm um, through lack of knowledge. Spinal cord injury is complicated. We need to advocate for educated medical staff so they can understand autonomic dysreflexia. But I remember back then feeling very pulled. You see, maybe you felt this way too in a hospital. I felt like I revered the capability of the hospital staff. I also felt I was at their mercy, that they had knowledge I did not. And I felt that there were many mistakes being made from small, careless ones to major harmful ones. It was a whole mixed bag. But it hadn't crossed my mind that they didn't have the knowledge we needed. I was trying to take as many notes as I could and to ask questions to learn and understand. I just wanted to do the best I could for Archer. Received from Billy Sempt, 10.35 p.m. The prayer vigil is on Channel 11 News at 11 p.m. It was awesome. I had a chance to interview Archer's boyhood and high school and lacrosse friend Jackson Morrill about the prayer vigil as we looked back together over five years later. Here's an excerpt of that interview. Hey, listen, um, I wanted to ask you about that prayer vigil at Friends School. Do you know which one I'm talking about? It was also back yep. in August. Yep, yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. Did you go to it? Yeah, I did, I did. I'm pretty sure I actually went and stood with some of my closer McDonough friends. Um, yeah, no, I was I was there, I remember it very clearly. And I, you know, my cousins went to Friends, but I hadn't really been on Friends campus very many times. So that really is the one time I've been on Friends campus. So that's kind of what I, know of it is that kind of um i don't even know what you would call it the the kind of patio that we were standing on um with some trees in there so i, I definitely remember it um remember it very clearly but i, I do remember it being because i i saw you had said that this was something that you may ask about and i was kind of thinking about it for a second um but i just i remember it i don't know if you will remember the date of it but i remember it being very close by the date um, 
August 27th. Yeah, and it was still very fresh at that point. It was powerful, but I think it was great because I hadn't really talked to my close friends at McDonough about it as much because it was kind of the closing of of summer and I'd talked to it with my soccer friends that I had seen at the start of soccer stuff. But some of my other friends that I hadn't seen as much, um, you know, I remember you know, James Margraf, some of those Baird Sutley, some of my other close friends being there. And I remember that was kind of the moment where it started to blossom out into everyone kind of talking about it and, you know, hearing what everyone's different experiences they were going through was, um, because, you know, my connection to Archer is very different than everyone else and, and their connection to your family, things like that. Um, but I think it became the thing where, you know, we could talk about it with each other, which um, I think, you know, doesn't naturally happen amongst juniors, seniors in high school. Received from Tara Grimes, ETA. It should take about one to one and a half hours from Philadelphia. Sent to Julie Sullivan, 1027 AM. A picture of Archer's cardiac pacemaker from Medtronic and all the pass keys and the passwords. Sent to Julie Sullivan, please log for Archer's medical file. This is important information for his pacemaker. Sent to Tara Grimes, 1028 AM. We are so appreciative. Received from Ann Hammond, 1029 AM. Dear Louise, another day out of my devotional. I have searched for things to send you and words of comfort. Most of the scripture that I have come across extols us to be strong because better things are on the horizon. I keep thinking that I can't send those to you because nothing will ever be as good for Archer physically as they were before his accident. But at least I can say that things have got to get better in the future than they are right this moment today. I'm so sad for you and... I know that God and his angels are watching you and crying for you and bearing you up. I have a spiritual Christian intuitive that I talk to at times. She helped me see a lot of Christ's love for me, and it helped me get through some very dark times. I'm going to talk to her today because, frankly, I have been a little freaked out by the strength of the response to my prayers for you and Archer. She will help me see what my stuff means, and I will share it with you. You have a strong and resilient spirit, and I think that Archer must have been lucky enough to inherit that from you. Stay strong, Louise, and know that an army stands behind you. Love, Anne. I will stay strong, Anne. I will. I think Archer knows we are not alone. Yes. Follow your gift. God works through all of us if we allow it. Thank you. I love you so much. As the morning continued on, I thought about that little YouTube video Archer had made just a year ago in high school. I thought about what he has already endured in his life. And I thought about what he said about pain. And I thought about the comfort of hot cocoa. 
and chocolate and sweet moments in life. Oh yes, it all tasted so good. And I could taste Atlanta and I could taste the sweetness of the friends supporting my family. As I sat bedside to Archer, watching his chest barely move with shallow breaths, the machines slowly whooshing and his heart monitor only showing 38 beats per minute, I was praying, asking God to surround Archer with light and healing warmth and to lift up the energy field under Archer to live. I was waiting for Billy to return and I was also focused on plans to get back to Baltimore to be with my other children who were all headed back to their respective schools. It was very unreal, a bit surreal, and I still held out that Archer would attend school too. He would just be a little delayed. It felt like we had to plot a way out of Atlanticare, including having Billy agree. And we had to find a potential partner who was an expert in such heists. We'll stay tuned for a future episode when I interview the Shepherd Center nurse practitioner who assessed Archer as she reflects on what the scene and the situation at Atlanticare was like for her. We were on needles and pins for what our next move would be. But as we hung in the limbs of the unknown, I was held up by the web of friendship, knowing that all kinds of calls and prayers and effort were being made on our behalf. There was a feeling of new movement, a potential, a new plan. Yes, a new North Star. I could feel the movement happening. We were not going to be at Atlanticare much longer. I felt it. I knew it was happening. It did feel like we were coming out of the darkness and being shown the light again. I was filled with gratitude and I was beaming hope. It also felt like a big team effort. I said to Tara Grimes, we have a new North Star. I think she understood what I meant. You know too what it is like when you feel you are moving in the right direction. It is so good. It is exhilarating. And while we didn't have an answer yet, because it depended on whether Archer's body would be strong enough to go, I walked out of the hospital that late afternoon and I looked up in the big blue sky. And I asked God, 
please guide us. Episode 20, The New North Star. Tara Grimes was delayed because the medical records were not forthcoming. And then she was not able to give us a definitive answer the day of her physical assessment because the Shepherd medical team had not yet had a chance to review Archer's records. Atlanticare only sent a partial record as it turns out, but even that was voluminous enough. It was read over the next two days, Monday and Tuesday, while we waited, not knowing, on pins and needles. And you can imagine it was a lot <laughs> looking at Archer's. He had lots of surgeries and lots of consults. Um, and we go through all of that clinical to make sure that medically the patient's appropriate. Are we going to be able to meet this patient's needs? And then we reach out to the families to set up an on-site to come and visit with them. Um, lately, unfortunately, we've been doing telephonics because of COVID, but um, typically we try to get on-site within 24 to 48 hours and meet with the families. In our world, it makes it, especially when you're thinking about coming from another state, multiple states away to Atlanta, kind of, e it, it, and this is what families have told me, kind of eases their minds a little bit. It makes it, when you actually have a physical person there giving you information, going over the information with you, and it's not only like an evaluation of the patient, but it's also, you know, a, a kind of an interview for Shepherd. Like, is this where you want to come and be? Because, you know, the length of stay can be significant uh, depending on the injury. Um, you know, we have a patient that has no medical complications, you know, and is, is a C5 quad who's not on the bed, who doesn't have any other issues. They're still going to be there eight to 10 weeks. You know, so two months away from home, they're lifting themselves up and coming to another state. So, if that's kind of how we would look at it clinically first. We're looking at the patient in a med very medically, clinically vision, and then we kind of go and start the education and then see if they're going to be the right fit for Shepherd, and we're going to be the right fit for, for the families and the patient. Yeah, I, I remember um, experiencing that. Like it was, you were educating us ab about Shepherd, and I also felt that you were seeing if, if, if we were right for Shepherd. It was mm -hmm. um, definitely, it felt like that two-way street. You know, when you speak of um, all of the records, do you remember how you tried to get the records and they wouldn't release them? Um, and then you had been, you texted me that, um, like, Louise, they said the family won't release the medical records. And we were like, what? Oh, yes, I remember that. <laughs> because I was, where, uh, because we were, we had, I'd spoken with Bernadette. Um, and her, she reaches out to me and Sarah Morrison, who is now our CEO. And, you know, that was kind of the first communication. And I was like, I don't mind calling the case manager and saying, you can you send these records? So, you know, we tried to, and, and for the most part, the case manager, social worker, I mean, 99% of the time they send the referral, you know, I don't know their, whether they didn't know like understand what Shepherd was or how we could you know help Archer um so yeah I, I remember that being like there's there was this disconnect of how we were going to get those medical records because honestly for me I 
I want to be as knowledgeable on the patient before I come and see them. Um, because you want, you don't want to give people false hope, but you also want to be help, hopeful. Um, and so knowing exactly what's going on and giving them the most education of like, this is where his level is and this is what we're seeing. And this is why we're seeing these things. And this is, could be his potential. Um, but, and then I'll come from kind of looking at that clinical information first. And, and that's not a hospital that we get a lot of referrals from. Mm -hmm. So we have some hospitals that we are very, you know, that tend to send a lot of their young patients, general, younger patients, adolescents, and they're, like we say, they're, they're trauma surgeons, they're neurosurgeons, have knowledge of what Shepard can do and what, why they, patients would come. And honestly, that had been the first time, and I can tell you the last time that I've ever been to the Renegade. I've never been there since um, seeing Archer. They have not, I've never seen another referral from them. It is just, I think the the point to mark is just how much confoundedness, you know, kind of muddling through can happen when people are just not aware of what needs to happen and what the possibilities are. Mm -hmm. um, because I, I certainly too had never heard of, I didn't even, I'd never even heard of the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation when, when Bernadette had first called me. Um, and then I had not ever heard of Shepherd Center. And and now <laughs> I, mean, I just can't even like when people like haven't heard of Shepard or Christopher and Danny will be like, really? Oh my gosh, yeah, you know, well, let me tell you all about them. <laughs> that's not your world, remember? That's the thing. It's like, if that's not your world, I mean, people, I mean we have people that live in Atlanta that have like, and I'm, you know, they've never heard of the Shepherds. And I'm like, it's this huge building and 150. But if you have never experienced a traumatic or non traumatic spinal cord brain injury, you, you might not unless you've seen it like in passing on the news or something like that or somebody that you know you knew might have it but yeah it's not it's it's learning something completely new for most people yeah no know? I think it's very very true and um and then it just is a wonderful reminder of you know just from an educational perspective to be able to tell tell people you know you never know what will come up Episode 21, Radical Inclusion. As Dutch and I got on the highway, I was thinking about what all had to be done in Baltimore. I knew I was going home to a house with a very empty refrigerator and cupboards. I stopped myself again and was like, your son is on the precipice of having to stay a long time in this hospital or of getting out, and you are busying yourself with how Paula and Dutch are going to eat for the next week? It was absurd, but it was also very real. They did have to eat. I thought it would be about another week before I could come home again, before we'd have some final answers about whether or not Archer was transportable. I turned to Dutch and said, we're headed home, baby, to Baltimore for something normal. The start of school. And you are going to have a great year. What do you want to do this year? 
its seventh grade. As we drove, I asked Dutch to send a text for me to the big kids, Paula, Pete, and Dewey, who are all back in Maryland now at their schools, to see if they could stop by the house tomorrow, late afternoon, after work, after school, so we could have a family meeting. That gathering weighed heavily on my mind, too, as Dutch and I continued driving. So much to figure out. So much still up in the air. But I could see the impression of Archer in my mind as he mouthed to me a couple days ago, one step at a time. I was only going to be home for less than 24 hours. The plan was I'd return to Atlanta Care the next evening after I prepared Dutch for his first day at school and did a day of facilitation mediation work <laughs> at Johns Hopkins with the physicians on the integration plan. Oh boy. I felt another wave of sadness. Maybe it was because I was leaving Dutch. I was so relieved that we had a chance to go to Shepherd, And I was so anxious about our not being there for Dutch. I know how important a positive start of every school year is. Every school day is for a child's success in the school year. I felt a shudder run down my back. I was to pay attention to something. Billy had lessened the complications of who would go with Archer, but it created the worry of who would be with Dutch, as I wondered how we would get Billy down to Atlanta too. Episode 23, Radical Acceptance. It was late when I called Billy. We talked for a long time. He spoke in ways that were not familiar to me in over 30 years of marriage. I had not ever heard him this way before. He was sort of dispersed and fragile. He gave me a window into his anguish and his wonderings about the work of evil in our lives. Maybe you've thought about that too. But as I listened to him, I felt a rush of solidarity with him again as we vowed to not let any of that break us. I still felt we had been orbiting on different paths the last few weeks, and I knew trauma could be like that. I had not even known where Billy was on many days. It was scary, as I also knew how trauma caused many families 
to break up. But he had really showed up at that prayer vigil in Baltimore for all of us and had spoken to a large crowd of people and to news reporters, also in a way he never had before. Billy's a very private person. It is not his thing to speak publicly or to speak without a script he has thought a lot about. And many people had texted me about that and also about his Facebook post. They noted he was very anguished about our book that was set to come out this September. Yes, I was sad about that too. Did anything come back to you about the book launch? I remember vaguely working with PR by the book. Right. Yeah, we worked with a company in Austin. And and that they're in Nashville. Well, they did have an office in Nashville. Good memory. And then there was the other company in New York, all doing PR or about to start the PR that was supposed to start exactly a month from launch date. And that's when almost exactly Archer was injured. So all those PR contracts that HCI had set us up with were all scuttled. That's fine, but I don't really remember anything that I was thinking around then except that it was like, okay, I guess that stuff all has to sort of go on hold. But we couldn't really not release the book. The book was being published when the book was being published. That was not something we could say, oh, no, don't do that. We're not ready for that. Yeah, it was already in all the bookstores and at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and the independent bookstores, all that. You're right. That was, that was all water under the bridge at that point. I just know it was really heavy. And... um and then I think it was put into perspective at the time of we just this that's just not gonna happen because we've got a higher priority, which is Archer. Episode twenty four Respiratory Failure. September 1, Tuesday, Day 28. Respiratory failure. That is what the Chief of Trauma wrote and showed me on the medical letter with the Atlantic Care Hospital letterhead on the top as we stared at each other in silence. There were no words to exchange. We were at the end of the line with Atlantic Air.
it was like a bucket of cold water thrown on my face. And it was devastating to see it in writing. What I didn't realize then, though, was that those very words would also make it possible for us to have medical coverage at another facility which had greater expertise. I was learning the ropes on this crazy insurance obstacle course and the chief of trauma was essentially helping us to go somewhere else. As Dr. Tolucci's eyes and mine met and lingered in a moment of mixed resignation, sadness, and the stark truth, I'd always liked him as he had always been a straight shooter. And I felt on our team. I mustered a faint smile and said, Thank you. He nodded and turned to leave the hospital room. I was thinking about so many things when my phone rang. Yes, this is she. Yes, Archer Sempt is my son. Yes, respiratory failure. Yes, two chest tubes. Yes, a pacemaker. It was the transportation company the Shepherd Center had put me in contact with, calling me back to arrange for Archer's transport to Atlanta. How many nurses? I don't know how many nurses will be needed. Yes, he is a minor. Yes, he is over six feet tall. No. He doesn't weigh 163 pounds. Only about 127 to 130 pounds now. Yes, on a feeding tube. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. nine monitors. I felt myself going through the drill, but as I heard myself, I also felt weak need. But he is strong. All of that life support is just temporary. He's going to get off of it all someday. You just have to get us there. Please. Yes, I will accompany him. And so will his dad. Oh, only one of us can go? I see. Yes, there are six machines. Yes, many tubes and drip bags. 
You've done this before, right? How long will the flight be? Oh, I see. A lot longer because it's a medical jet. How come? Oh, I see. We will fly in a different airspace that is slower, but it will lessen the pressure on his lungs. Okay, well that is good. Yes, to the Shepherd Center in Atlanta, Georgia. Right, it's not a long-term acute care facility. Thank goodness. Yes, we realize that. They have an ICU he'll be taken to. They said he'll do fine. He just needs the right care and time. They've promised they will get him off the ventilator in three days or less. We just have to get him there. It was happening. We were going. Denied. That's what the insurance company said this morning after I called them frantically at midnight last night. They would not cover Archer's flight to Atlanta. But how else are we to get him there? I incredulously asked the insurance representative assigned to us. She told me they do not cover air travel when there is another alternative. What she meant was another less expensive alternative. But I said there wasn't any other option and it was my son's life. I left the kids and walked down the hall to the family waiting room to call Tara Grimes at the Shepherd Center to apprise them of the latest on the transportation and that it was not covered by insurance. I took in a big gulp and I asked God and all my angels to help us. Do you have any way to problem solve this with us? I asked Tara. She listened carefully and gave me the name of another medical transportation company to call, told me to have my credit card ready, that that is standard and the only method of payment transportation companies take. And then she told me the Shepherd Center would pay half. I couldn't believe it. Really? I felt like it was a miracle. I was flooded with gratitude. Thank you. Thank you. I hung up and called the flight company and then texted two friends, Ned Inslee and David DeMuth, who had been texting me, telling me they were going to help us. I explained the turn of events, and they said they would raise the other half amongst friends. It was incredible. I can't tell you exactly what it felt like to have so many people doing such kind things for us. I felt a huge sense of relief and gratitude 
My phone pinged, and it was a text from an old friend when the kids were younger, Ellie Franklin. She sent me a verse from the Old Testament, Isaiah. They will soar on wings like angels. Oh my God. That was so nice just to get when I just needed it. Oh, that beautiful song came into my mind. On eagle's wings. And he will raise you up on eagle's wings. We left the hospital headed for a steakhouse. It was the first time I had left the hospital or adjoining parking garage to walk more than a block. Before our meal, I visited the ladies' bathroom. As I came upon it, the sign denoting it was the women's bathroom was marked lambs. I thought, hmm, that's a new one. Well, at this very moment, as we wait, it dawned on me. I love that the place where we are going is called Shepherd. An old friend sent a verse from Isaiah. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have their young. I was and am a lamb, and I will carry my lamb. I, too, feel gently led. And let's pray to God and to the Blessed Mother Mary and all the guardian angels. We'll let you know. The flight team is almost here. Goodbye, Atlantic City. Amen. The clouds are so beautiful. I feel Archer and I are floating. It's so peaceful and quiet and still. Archer's breathing is holding steady. Hold on, my darling. Hold tight. now. Our next season will answer this question and raise many more and bring you along in the journey with Archer and me, a circuitous but ever onward healing journey.
and hopefully a journey for yourself as well. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. Thank you for listening to Blink of an Eye. Stay tuned for our next episode a week from today on our usual day, Wednesday. This season, we are expanding on our trauma healing learnings and publishing them every other week. So the next episode will be a trauma healing learning on exciting advancements in integration and trauma healing with interviews from members of I See That, the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing advocacy, and transformation. Hear from a few trustees about the exciting advances in spinal cord injury and how I see that is filling a crisis gap for spinal cord injury families and medical teams across the country. Then we will pick up our story where we left off, our arrival at the Shepherd Center in Atlanta, Georgia, with this season of suspense, joys, and heartbreaks, and how we can cultivate collective trauma healing in our daily lives. And for those of you who don't know, we are switching to a new schedule for season three. We're still releasing an episode every Wednesday, but we're going to alternate the episodes with the narrative story and the trauma healing learnings so you'll have more time to listen and reflect on the learnings that come to you. This season, like the others in the story, is based on real-life, written-in-real-time journal entries with later interviews, years later, of the real people behind the scenes. But we are expanding the trauma healing learnings to include interviews with wise men and women on many aspects of trauma healing and integration, with expanded conversations with experts on various topics, including ancient trauma healing modalities, cutting edge medical trials and information, and new discoveries about the brain and body and other exciting subjects. Thank you for listening and telling your friends about Blink of an Eye. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. We're excited to have you with us for Season 3. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Blink of an Eye podcast is sponsored by I See That, the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation, a nonprofit created as a national resource to help change the way we respond to spinal cord injury to include trauma healing approaches for families and medical teams across the U.S.
I see that provides a national pool of SCI specialized radiologists for second opinions in the first hours of crisis, a multidisciplinary family support and advocacy team for SCI families for the first 30 days of crisis, and a national registry of medically unexpected SCI recoveries. They will also host the inaugural virtual conference, The Science of Trauma, Hope for Trauma Healing. To donate and find out more, please visit www.icthat.org. That's the letters I-C-T-H-A-T dot org.